The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name for the truths that we just sang of, particularly in that last song, you, the sovereign one, purchased us. We bless your name that you are the sovereign one. That is such good news. It's the heart of the good news that Isaiah shouted, shout from the mountaintops, your God reigns. You are the sovereign one. There's a good thing in our lives. You control every aspect of, of everything that happens. You reign. So we bless your name for that. And then we marvel at the fact that you purchased us. You sent Christ the Son to buy us out of death and slavery and to make us your people. You did that in the gospel. That's what, that's what the heart of the Bible is about. That's what all, every spoke that leads into the heart is about in one way or another is the gospel. Christ crucified to redeem a people to you, us. You purchased us. Bless your holy name. The real gospel has done that. And I pray, Lord, this morning that as we think about this passage in the book of Philippians, it doesn't so much spell out the gospel as it does talk about some of the effects of it and warn us about turning away from it, about losing it. Lord, as we consider this passage, would you cause thankfulness and hope and particularly joy to rise up in your people here? Those here this morning, those who will hear this later, would you cause joy and, and trust and thanksgiving to rise up in us and, and, and move us along a continuum, seeing life as a continuum, move us along that continuum such that joy and thankfulness and, and delight in you and confidence in you grips us a little bit more and, and makes us different people, not just in the moment that we experience it, but makes us different going forward. Grab your people and change them. So shine in front of us, God, by your Spirit, shine in front of us who you are and what you've done for us. Use the passage before us this morning here a little bit to do that. Would you build a church, please, Father? However long it takes you, however you choose to do it, whatever plan, pattern you follow, whatever timing you work on, would you build a church here that is delighted in you and is a delight to you? Please yourself with us. That would be pleasing to us. So carry out your will here, please, Lord. Use this passage this morning towards that end. Give clarity to what I say and give clarity to how we think and follow along. Help us to focus 
that we understand you in your word and be grown by it. Have your way with us this morning, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, where we begin a, a whole new section in this book. For the last little while now, we've been following along with Paul as he as he'd been addressing a major topic that he began at the end of chapter 1 and carried all through chapter 2, the call, the, the exhortation of the people of God to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. He worked on that for quite a while, and then he concluded that section at the very end of chapter 2 with, with travel news about two guys that he was going to send, seemingly just send on small tasks to Philippi, but really his, his main goal Behind that was to send them as models to Philippi. Models of what he had been exhorting them on for the whole chapter before. So we saw last week Epaphroditus, verse 25 and following. Paul emphasized there Epaphroditus' sacrifice, his willingness to lay down his life for the cause of Christ. In view of, of a God who is a God of mercy, this is the God that we have, the God who is over us, a God of compassion and kindness and wise mercy. Wise. He's wise in doing good to us. Even when it doesn't perhaps appear on, on the surface at the first take, it does not appear to us that he is doing good. He is strong and controlling all the circumstances to work good into the lives of his people. So while whatever stands before us, like whatever stood before Epaphroditus, looks like risk, laying his life on the line, in the end it isn't a risk, it's an investment. Sure to meet with, from God, great good. That's the kind of God that calls us to lay our lives all completely before him. That was last week. And now as we turn to chapter 3, we start a new section one in which Paul is going to issue a, a warning to the church, which is a common warning. He's talked to them about it before. He talks to other churches throughout the New Testament about it. It's a common warning. It's related to the gospel, about the importance of holding on to the true gospel, which was threatened, probably would, have, would be threatened in the future in Philippi. So there's a warning in this passage about the danger of, of letting loose of the gospel, of letting the gospel be changed or undermined. So naturally, with warning, there is call to protect the true gospel. But as we look more closely at it, what we're going to see, I think, is that this is less about warning and more about worship. There is indeed warning. There is indeed a call. Don't let the gospel slide away. Watch out for those who want to take it. But really what Paul's about is, is, is not just that we would guard something, but that we would glory in it. What he's going to do more is lift up at, at the end of the passage. This is what's happened to us in this gospel. Awesome, isn't it? That, that's where he's going with this. We'll see. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3. So this morning, here's what we're working towards. Here's my main point this morning. In a sentence, the real gospel has made us God's people. And that is a reason to rejoice. The real gospel has made us God's people, and that is reason 
to rejoice. So I'm going to work towards this morning by making three observations from the passage, but let me read it first. This is Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1, but then I'm going to finish the sentence into verse 4. So 1 through the beginning of verse 4. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. That's the passage. I'm going to pull three observations out of that. First, Godward rejoicing should constantly mark us. Godward rejoicing should constantly mark us. Verse 1 begins with the word finally, which we need to understand not in the sense of the end. I mean, obviously, he's not at the end. He's got a whole other two chapters to go here. But what he means, and this is another way you could translate it, is as for what's left, that's what remains. He's closing off one section saying, There, now I'm done with that. Now, for the rest, what's on my mind? He's got a, a different subject here. He's kind of leaving behind the exhortation to walk as citizens worthy of the gospel and is moving on to something else. Finally, here at the end, what he's going to do is drape over everything that's to come this command rejoice in the Lord. This is the apostle telling the church to rejoice. So let's think about this for a second. That's a, that's a simple sentence, but we need to think. This is a group of Christians that he's familiar with, obviously. And obviously, as he's been saying, he knows that this, so here's Paul, this group of Christians, they are in partnership with him in the ministry of the gospel, which, as he said repeatedly, has brought him and them hardship and suffering. They are partakers with him in suffering. They are being poured out as a sacrifice as he's being poured out as a drink offering. They are with him in a ministry testifying to Jesus as Lord in a place, in a city where that is not easy and it's bringing on them by their very own choices, bringing on them opposition from people who don't like them, including the empire itself. So Paul very clearly understands life is difficult for them. And beyond what he knows for certain, he also can probably guess, as we can, that there is a host of other incidental trials and hardships going on in their lives also, because they're people. Someone has health problems. And someone's work situation is difficult. Business is slow, or someone who's a slave has a master who's unsympathetic. And there's someone who has a strained marriage, and there's someone who has difficult kids, and someone has parents who don't understand, and someone's house burned down, and someone's loved one just died. Of course, 
because they're people in the world. That kind of thing is going on with them just like it is with us. We know that about us. We know that about them. Paul knows that about them. And get this, he tells them, as in commands them, doesn't advise them, again, not the first time, he did it last chapter, this chapter, he's going to do it again in chapter 4, he commands them again and again and again to rejoice. And as you read that, perhaps you begin to get the impression that maybe they're supposed to rejoice. We need to think about this because Paul knows hardship and suffering and opposition and the ordinary difficulties of life. Indeed, yes, rejoice. Command. Again, and again, and again. This is not a very long book. It is all over the book of Philippians. Joy and rejoicing is all over the place in this book. So either Paul's an idiot, totally disconnected with reality, or we have something to learn here. I'm going with the latter. He expects an active expressing of joy, rejoicing, and embracing of and walking under the influence of joy. Let me say that again. An embracing of and then walking under the influence of joy, of inner delight. When you encounter something hard or disappointing or painful, you probably don't immediately feel joy, but rather feel unsettled or hurt or afraid or endangered, scared, something or another to some degree. You feel that. It just kind of, boom, just rises up right there. And, and then right next to it, perhaps, hopefully you realize, I'm commanded to rejoice. And as you put those two things, the immediate feeling and the command to rejoice, a couple things should be apparent. You haven't yet sinned in this feeling that rose up, that was instinctive, if you will, that was reflex. You haven't yet sinned, but you're also not yet done processing. You now need to make a decision with this thing that rose up. Okay, now what do I do? What am I going to embrace and walk under the influence of? What am I going to verb with the noun? What am I going to do in regards to feeling, emotion? We have a matter, all humanity, and not just, not just us, humanity has a massive problem in that we do not move on to step two. We, we live, men and women alike live. I feel, therefore. No, you've got to stop and take hold of your feeling and decide, what do I do with that now? You feel sorrow. Okay, now what? You're not done. Will you rejoice in the midst of the sorrow? 
That's possible. Paul says that elsewhere. Sorrowing, but ever rejoicing. This happened. This sorrow arises. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to rejoice in the midst of the sorrow? Or, in fact, will you embrace and move forward walking under the control of despair in your sorrow? Or will you embrace and move forward in despondency? Or will you rage? Or will you blame? Or will you distract? Or will you deny? Something happens. This is, this is how we live. Something happens, we feel, and then what are you going to do with that? And Paul says again and again and again, rejoice. Can't stop what happens. Can't stop what rises up. But you can do something and must do something right there. Rejoice. which is simple and wonderful and confusing, maybe, because of how so often we don't. It, it is wonderful. Think about the goodness of God in this. Every single one of us, I don't, I don't know every single person here at all, I don't know most of us personally, but I know you because I know me. Every single one of us longs deeply for joy. How good of God to make us like that and how good of God to command that and not to command the stifling of it or the suppression of it, but in fact to, to fan into flame even by, by written command to fan that which we most deeply long for. God is so good. Rejoice. He commands Oh, thank goodness, because if he said, knock it off, buckle up, but I want joy. Never mind. Uh, can you imagine how we would be stuck there with this, but my humanity feels like, but my God commands. So many religious people and so many religions of the world are stuck right there in tragedy. But the God of the Bible, the God who is real, made joy in our hearts and then commands it. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But it's a confusing thing because we're not there often. Often. So maybe you need to sit here and, and be unsettled just a little bit by this for a moment. Maybe be convicted by it. Maybe there's some degree of repentance that, that should rise up because... If you think about you for a minute, perhaps you become aware how dominant complaint and criticism and negativity and fear and depression and disappointment, etc., are in your life. Maybe you think about you for a minute and you see all that and you think, oh man, not only is that bad, it's wrong. I'm supposed to rejoice, commanded to, again and again and again. I'm not talking about what rises up in you in, in the moment. I'm talking about what you embrace and then walk under. And so often we live sub-Christian lives. Very human lives. Sub-Christian lives. 
and don't let yourself off the hook by rationalization. I, I would be like that, but things have been so hard. In other words, things have been just like they were in Philippi. The ones who received the commands. Don't, don't try to get, a, get away from this dilemma. I, I want to rejoice, I'm commanded to rejoice, and so often I don't. Don't try to get away by saying, well, I would if things were different. No, no you wouldn't. The problem's not in the things. The problem's in here. So don't try to get away like that, but rather we should consider how God expects to work in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He made us to want joy. He commands us to rejoice. How, 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 how does God mean to work to get us there? The answer is in the rest of the sentence. Rejoice in the Lord. There's a lot right there. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing should constantly mark us, and that is to be a Godward rejoicing. Not only is it supposed to be, but it can't be otherwise if it's going to last. This is the context for our response to all the trials and tribulations that we ever face, all the hardships we ever face, because all of life sits in this context, Christian, you exist, you live, every moment of your life is in the Lord. If you think, I've talked about this a bunch of times before, if you think about this, a bubble, a, a sphere, the Lord, you live in that. That's your context. And, and our great problem with rejoicing is that we often forget the context of our lives. And maybe you hear rejoicing and you feel the, the desire for joy. And what you attempt to do is, is find joy and to rejoice outside of that sphere. As if you could move. Mentally, we do move. But, but you live in here. You are in here. And everything in here is what for you, Christian? Crappy. That's what you think. I could have used a, I mean, I tried to use a little bit of a word, a little shocking there. could have used a worse word because that's really what you think. You don't just think crappy. You think worse than that. I'm, I can't say that. <laughs> but that's what you think. Rejoice in the Lord. You live in the Lord. Everything that happens to you in every moment of every day is in the Lord, beneath the hand of this sovereign one who reigns to do what to you? To do good to you only and always and forever and ever and ever. Who do you have on, in heaven and on earth except him. And frankly, what do you need other than him? You are a Christian, and you live in a place, and if, oh, if God by his Spirit would open your eyes and cause you to see your life is in the Lord, and then to rejoice in the Lord, and not to try to pursue rejoicing outside of the Lord in all kinds of other stuff that fails. It fails. 
which is why you can't rejoice. You hooked your wagon to a, a train that crashed. So you rejoice in the Lord. You rejoice in the fact that Jesus himself is and the fact that you are in Jesus. And if his spirit would give you eyes to see all the realities that that means looming large over your life as really, truly, honest to goodness, determinative for everything that happens to you, you could not help but rejoice. Now what I just said there is a miracle. If God would give you eyes to see. But that tells you the direction that you have to point your, your face and lift up your prayers. Oh God, give me eyes to see what it means for me to be in Christ who Jesus is and who he is for me. Give me eyes to see that. And then God, by his Spirit, supernaturally, works in us to will and to work. According to that, That's God's work. But our work, we work out our salvation from chapter 2, our work is to look to him and cry out, help, open up the Scripture and say, give me eyes to see this. And his work then is to give you eyes to see. Too often, too often, too often, we Christians do one of two things. We either look outside of the Lord and try to rejoice in happy circumstances, or we just realize I'm not rejoicing, and we try to do this. And with our fingers, force up the corners of our mouths and try to make ourselves smile. I mean that metaphorically, obviously. problem is in what you believe. Your joylessness shows that you believe crappy. Or shows that you believe here's where joy is found. It isn't, and it isn't. In Christ Blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing has begun to be showered on you. May he give you eyes to see it and to believe it because he commands rejoicing to be a constant mark of us. Godward rejoicing. So may he give you eyes to see what he has done for us in the true gospel. And to rejoice in that, that's what honors him. That's what actually leads to joy in us. But it's in the true gospel, which is why it's important to guard the real gospel, which brings us to the second point. Second observation, we must guard against the anti-gospel temptation to put confidence in self. We must guard against the anti-gospel. And really, I could have also said the, the non-gospel. That's not good news. But the anti-gospel temptation to put confidence in self. Second half of verse 1, Paul now begins to discuss the remaining things, the stuff that he has yet on his mind to talk about. 
He just draped them with this command to rejoice in the Lord. Now he's going to say some stuff, which as he tells them, and he'll say it again later in the chapter, I've already talked about this. As we read the New Testament, we realize he's talked about this a bunch of different places. He talks about this all the time because it's a constant threat. But like a, a good shepherd of the sheep, he's going to bring it up again to guard them, to protect them from a danger that, well, because he waited so long to address it, they probably don't face it at the moment. He knows it's only a matter of time until it comes back around because it always comes back around. So he wants to warn them about this again. And we need to do two things here. We need to figure out, we need to think about the text and figure out what is he talking about. And then, understanding that, we need to figure out how to turn that to apply to us because what he's talking about is not, it, like that, is not real present in our world right now for us. We need, we need to figure out what he's got in mind. So the text first. Paul shouts danger to them in a very rhetorically packed way in verse 2. Three times reminding the church to look out for some certain people. Same group of people. He describes them in three ways. To watch out for these people and their message. And how he describes them tells us what the problem is. When he often faced, these are people who thought of themselves as Christians. They thought of themselves as believers in Messiah Jesus and his sacrifice. But they tacked onto that, and that's the whole problem, tacked onto that a little bit more. They tacked on the belief in a need to perform the law of Moses, particularly starting with circumcision. That was their, their belief, their understanding, that in order to join and remain in the people of God for whom Messiah Jesus is the sacrifice, to join and remain in that group, you need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. You can see these people in different letters throughout all the New Testament. Paul encountered them often. They thought that was the only way to become God's people, to be clean in his sight and to enjoy his blessings. But in verse 2, Paul reminds the church of what these men really are, and he calls them dogs. Evildoers, and then graphically, literally, the mutilation. That's a tough word. He calls them dogs because that was a term that Jews used to describe Gentiles. Not just because dogs are mangy creatures, but because dogs are scavengers and ate all kinds of stuff and therefore were ceremonially unclean, Jews describe Gentiles as dogs, unclean before God and not belonging to his people, outside of his people. So it is with great irony, is it not, that Paul tells this thoroughly Gentile church to watch out for the dogs, the unclean ones, you know, the ones who are going to try to tell you to keep the law of Moses. That's a twist. As is, look out for the evildoers. Language that echoes a lot of places in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, where the evildoers are those people who are against God and against his people, who are working wickedness. Again, People who are to be watched out for. They're working wickedness as they try to tell you to keep the law of Moses. Twist. As is, look out for the mutilation. 
And the next phrase, beginning of verse 3, tells us what he means by that. Contrasting mutilation with circumcision. Watch out for the mutilation, for we are the circumcision. Two similar words, two similar ideas, cutting flesh. But he takes them in two radically different ways. We, you Gentiles, and me, believing Jew, we are the circumcision, though you're not circumcised. We are the circumcision. They are the mutilation. That's a hard word to call somebody, but it's making a massive point. These people are dogs unclean, workers of evil, who mutilate, who cut the flesh as was forbidden by God of people. Paul has no fondness for these people. What's the problem? Why? Well, you can see it in the effect of those three words. Those three words describe a people that are not forgiven before God, but in fact remain under his curse and are not his people, not recipients of his blessing. They are unclean, they are outside, they work evil. So the effect of what they're teaching leaves a person under the wrath of God, outside of God's people, not a recipient of his gracious blessing. That's a great danger, the greatest of all dangers. So here's people who are coming coming and teaching something like that, and he wants to say, watch out for that, reject that, hold that at arm's length. We're probably not going to face this. I I would suspect that most people here didn't really understand what, what they were talking about, just reading the words, and probably very few of us have been tempted to be circumcised so as to be forgiven. That's not a real common problem that we face. So how do we understand this issue today? Because the basic issue in it is something that you do face all the time. What's their main problem? We see it at the very end of verse 3, and a couple times mentioned in verse 4. I'm not going to go real far into this because I will pick it up again next week when I go into verse 4 and following. But we see there three times the phrase, confidence in the flesh. End of 3 and twice in verse 4, confidence in the flesh. What these people would have taught, again, they thought of themselves as Christians. They would have taught absolutely Jesus is Messiah. Absolutely, Jesus' sacrifice pays for sin. Absolutely. And, tacked on, just like in the Old Testament when the lamb was slain and its blood covered sin, that lamb was slain and the blood covered the sin of the covenant people. And if you wanted to be included in that sacrifice, you had to join the covenant people. How did you do that? By being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses. So the lamb's been replaced by Jesus, and if you want to be in that people, be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Duh. 
What inevitably happens there is the sacrifice is offered either way. The real focus is on, have you been circumcised? And do you keep the law of Moses? Yes, then good, you're in. Yes, then good, you're still in. It all comes down to what have you done and what do you do? That determines your standing before God. Confidence in the flesh, not the gospel, cries out Paul. Leaves you unclean, doing evil, condemned. Confidence in the flesh. That's the problem. And that's a problem we constantly face. Not just in what passes for the gospel and the dominant religion in this valley. I did just say that. There is something called the gospel that includes Jesus and something about his death or at least shedding of blood. But the real focus, just like for these folks, the real focus is on what have you done. It is confidence in the flesh. It is not the gospel. Now briefly, what Paul would point out if he were to actually address the details of the real gospel would be to say Abraham received the promised blessings before he was circumcised by faith alone. He's going to argue from the text and from history that circumcision is of no avail. It doesn't, do, it doesn't do anything for you. It's not a bad thing if you want to do it. I don't care. Paul himself would sacrifice, circumcise Timothy. It's not relevant. It's confidence in it that's the problem. Confidence in the flesh. In some religions out there, indeed, but let's not talk about out there. Let's talk about in here. Because we face that. We face that. It is very common in churches everywhere in America today to think that what I do determines my standing before God. Confidence in the flesh. There are people sitting in churches everywhere in America this morning, maybe even here, who think themselves right with God, who think themselves included in the people of God, who think themselves recipients of his blessings because they were baptized at some point in the past, because they at some point raised a hand or walked an aisle, because at some point they, they recited a certain prayer. Now, is being baptized wrong? Of course not. Is praying a prayer wrong? No. Raising your hand sinful? No, I just did. Just like being circumcised is not in itself wrong. It's confidence in the flesh. That's what I rely on. That's why I'm in. That's why I'm okay today. That's the problem. The gospel tears away all confidence from anything we do in any way whatsoever and puts it all into faith, grace, Christ, alone, alone, alone. 
We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Alone. And tragically, some people sit in churches right now, yes, understanding something about the sacrifice of Christ, and yes, understanding something about his removing of sin, but, but the thing, the reason I know I'm in is that I did so and so. The question is, do you believe? Do you trust him? Not did you do? So in a salvation sense, we may have a problem with that, but I, I think perhaps even more commonly, commonly, we have a problem with confidence in the flesh, determining my standing before God in the day-by-day walking sense. Because how many of us, how many of us think God's smile on me today is determined by whether or not I read my Bible this morning. Or whether or not I prayed this morning. Or whether or not I went to church this week. Or whether or not, name it. Very, very, very often we place a confidence in the spiritual disciplines and say, look, I've performed my spiritual disciplines. I stand pleasing to him. Or maybe not your spiritual disciplines, maybe your your intellectual theological knowledge. I, I know a whole bunch about the book of Ephesians and I memorized parts of it. I'm okay. Or spiritual pedigree. I've been to so-and-so's church. I used to attend there. I used to be a member over there. Our our educational, I went to ICS in Wheaton. Therefore, I'm throwing out a a collection of things here, and maybe none of them exactly hits you, but please think about this for a second. Do you, Christian, do you day by day conceive of God and me before him, either okay or not okay, based on what I did today, this week, or didn't do today, this week. It is extremely common. Extremely common. How many men... Don't raise your hands. You wouldn't, but how many men fail in some area of lust or sexual temptation and then for some self-determined time feel like on the outs with God until somehow in your mind you've kind of paid for it and then then you're okay again. How long is that supposed to be? I don't know. It depends how long you looked. If you spend hours on the internet, maybe it's a week. If it's a quick glance, maybe only a day. We just make it all up. Because we're thinking, what I do determines my standing before God. Of course, there isn't any guideline to that, so I've got to make it all up myself. Now, am I excusing sexual sin? I hope, I hope you would think not. I'm not excusing any sin, but I want to point something out to you. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. 
just sinned in Christ, have to deal with that, yes, but we'll always deal with it as a beloved son. Not as an outcast or a reject. You broke the law of God. Indeed, repent and trust Christ's blood to cover it. I don't know if I can adequately express this, but I I talk to Christians and I live as a Christian, so I know you. This is, oh, so deeply worked into your life, Christian. You really do consistently believe that what you do determines your standing before God. And I'm trying to plead with you, it doesn't. You stand in grace, not under condemnation. That is not a free pass of sin. Of course not, of course not, of course not. But you're never going to deal with sin until you realize, deeply beloved that I am, he wants me to come to him. He wants to wash me. He wants me to open my life in front of him and and have poured onto me cleansing grace that teaches me to say no to ungodliness. And instead, I run away until I've paid for it. It doesn't work. And it denigrates what he has done at the cross to remove your sin and summon you into his presence. Ugh. We must, Christians, we must be on guard against anti-gospel temptations to depend on ourselves. Obviously, of course, to get into the kingdom, but then to walk in the kingdom and to experience his blessing. The great wonder, and here I'm beginning to move towards the third point, the great wonder is that we are the circumcision. We are. That means you are the people of God, if you're a Christian. You already are. Which means... That the place God's grace is poured out, his blessings are more poured out, is on you. We are that. So to finish the second point, we must be discerning and diligent for God's honor, for our own good, in resisting the temptation to lean on ourselves and our own efforts both in our, in our being saved and in our being sanctified. The third point. Third observation. We rejoice in God. So I'm going back to get to the first point. Rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in God because by the real gospel, not the one that depends on ourself and puts confidence in the flesh, We rejoice in God because by the real gospel he has made us his people. We rejoice in God because by the real gospel he has made us his people. He has made you his people. Verse 3 describes who we are. And he's telling us this to cause us to think and to bask in it. Notice he's just warned them stridently about the false gospel, and he doesn't actually then explain the true gospel because he knows they know it. 
he talks about what the gospel has done. Because he wants them not just to know the facts, or know the facts, he wants them to see and to, and to glory in it. That's what will produce rejoicing in the Lord. That's what will give us the antidote against relying on ourselves. To see what the gospel has done. See what God has done for us in the gospel. He's made us his people. We are the circumcision. Again, using Jewish terminology to describe the Gentile church. Saw this sort of thing back in chapter 2, verse 15, where, where again we saw that God's expectation of the Old Testament of what he wanted his people to be, ethnic Israel failed at, and Paul said that God has accomplished it, fulfilled it in the church. The New Testament church, believing Jew and believing Gentile together. Well, same thing comes up here again. He calls us, believing Jew, Paul, Gentiles, the Philippians, the circumcision. which is common shorthand for the people of God. God's own. The ones that he set aside. That's what circumcision was doing in the Old Testament. It's a sign and seal of a covenant that, if you think about it graphically for just a moment, a man would see it a couple times every day. Sometimes his wife would. And would realize, oh, look at that. I'm owned. I've been marked. I'm possessed. I'm not my own. Somebody owns me. I'm his. Reminded of that constantly. So it's shorthand for saying belongs to God, God's people. That's who we are. That's who we are. The circumcision. Apart from keeping the law of Moses, obviously, what he was just teaching them in verse 2, apart from anything we have done or will do, we are his. That is, we are his by grace, not by works. What he has done. We are his, that is, continuing in verse 3. Here he describes us a little bit more. That is, we are those who worship by the Spirit of God. And again, he uses uh, some Jewish terminology. The word worship, maybe you have an English translation that has that word as serve. Commonly in the Old Testament, it's used to describe priests serving in the temple. We are people who render spiritual service or worship to God. Not in a physical temple, obviously but in all of our lives. God always wanted a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's what he has made us, his people, to be, a, king, a whole kingdom full of priests, that as we go out and walk through life, we worship, that is, we serve him everywhere, we give our lives to him in a way that lifts him up, that shows him to be supreme, shows him to be glorious, shows him to be the one that we trust and depend on, the one that we follow, the one that we obey, the one that is worthy of all worship everywhere from everyone. That's our lives. Servants of his. Simply that. Rendering worship to him. But the kicker, we worship him how? 
by the Spirit. And if you're tracking through Jewish Old Testament references again and again, every phrase, Jewish Old Testament references, by the Spirit goes, boo. For us, we might read that and just kind of skip over it because he's always talking about the Spirit and etc. We just skip it. When you've got Jewish Old Testament, Jewish Old Testament, Jewish Old Testament, we worship, serve him, yeah, uh, yeah, sure, by the Spirit. Oh, why is that important? Because the Old Testament is a forecast of the day, those last days when God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh, men and women alike, young and old alike, would put his spirit in people and move them to follow his decree, would put his spirit, God himself would come to dwell inside of people in power and move us to will and to work according to his good pleasure, to, to orient all of our lives after him in service and in worship. That day is coming, 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 coming. And Paul says it's happened. The promised blessing that Paul in Galatians talks about, this is the promise made to Abraham that the Spirit will be outpoured. It's happened to you. Speechless. Now, unfortunately, we're Christians, and we may not even notice this is Trinitarian, that we worship God by the Spirit and glory in Christ, because it's just the water that we swim in. Skip, flies right by us. We may not even notice it's by the Spirit. Yeah, everything is, sure. But if you're tracking with the argument, he just said, you won the lottery. Better than that. You won the lottery for the whole western country, western part of the country, multi-state, whatever that's called. Better than that. All of the wealth in all of the creation got poured into your heart. Better than that, God himself indwells you. Something hoped for, talked about in the past, yours! Oh! That only happened by the real gospel. One for us by Christ crucified who circumcised the fallen flesh of our hearts who cut away deadness that God himself would come and live life in us. So we glory in Christ, the next phrase. We glory in Christ. We are the people of God. That is, we're the people who serve him everywhere by his Spirit. That is, we're the people who serve him everywhere by his Spirit, glorying in Christ Jesus alone who did this, placing no stupid, silly, foolish confidence in anything we've done. I didn't bring my dead self to life. I didn't open my blind eyes to see. I didn't do anything. He did it. That is reason to rejoice in the Lord. May God give you eyes to see it. The gospel, Christ crucified, believed, saves a people to God for our eternal good, for the presence of the Spirit in us, for lives changed to follow him in communion with the great God, 
Father, Son, and Spirit, who is and who is good forever and ever and ever. That is reason, Christian reason, to rejoice if you would have eyes to see it. And if you look at your life and see, oh, why so downcast, oh, my soul? Then no, the answer is, next phrase in the psalm, put your hope in God. It is possible, not to mention commanded, 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 it is possible to live a life of rejoicing. It's what he expects of us, his people. It is what he has provided for, for us, his people. I'm not talking about a Pollyanna rejoicing that has no suffering, has no hardship. I'm talking about right in the middle of the hardship. Like Philippian people. Right in the middle of that. I'm growing in that myself. I, I, I am a glass... Not half empty, two-thirds empty. I'm, I'm a glass two-thirds empty person, and I'm, I'm growing in this, but it is wonderful that it's possible, commanded and offered and provided for. So may God give you eyes to see what he has done for you in the real gospel, to make you his people, to give you his spirit, to give you himself, to change your forever he give you eyes to see that. May you cry out to him for eyes to see and to believe that. Because that is a reason to rejoice. Let me pray. God, you alone are worthy of praise. Would you give us eyes to see why and hearts to believe it? Thank you for the precious gift of your Spirit who lives in us to move us to follow you, to communicate to us relationship with you. Glorious as that is, we so often forget it. So help us to see and believe and remember and build a people that are happy in the deepest, widest, longest sense happy to your honor and for our good, happy to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.